0: Okay. Um, If you talk around Christianity uh, at any length and ask about the resurrection, of course, if you go to the scholars and the leaders, they're going to give you uh, this point of view and that point of view. But generally, it's not understood. We're in 1 Corinthians 15. This is, I think, our third or fourth part. And we're going to be in it for a little bit, uh, quite a bit longer, a number more weeks, because it's all about the resurrection. And it is something most of us do not understand. We have ideas about it, but we can't really put it together in context of everything the Bible seems to be talking about with it. When does it happen? How does it happen? What order does it happen? What will it look like when it happens? Who gets it? How do they get it? Are there different kinds? Uh, Is it that we're going to be coming out of the literal grave or is it spiritual? Endless stuff. So I had in my notes here, listen, this, in this part I'm going to cover verses 12 through 19, right? And uh, I got through verse 12. Uh, and it's just, there's so much, but this stuff is, it's like we're taking the puzzle of the resurrection and it's a 10,000 piece puzzle and we're throwing it all here on the stage, but all the pieces are here. It's up to the Spirit to help us put them together and to understand what's being said. So we left off last week, and Paul has addressed some matters relative to him and his walk as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. And he ended with saying that he was the last of all those people he listed as having witnessed his resurrection to have seen him, and he described himself as a Jew and as a persecutor of the church, and that he was called out from that, and he became a mighty laborer of souls, which we talked about, and we wrapped it up at verse 11 with him saying that whether it was the other apostles or whether it was him, it didn't matter. The gospel was preached and those believers at Corinth and those members of the body at Corinth believed. That's what he summed it all up in verse 11. And at this point, he steps into the situation that caused this chapter to come forward what we call a chapter, and uh, someone's teaching something wrong about the resurrection. And so after he says, listen, you've believed because one, somebody who's witnessed the resurrection has preached to you, he says at verse 12, Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So that is the problem. Someone's saying there's no resurrection of the dead there at Corinth, right? So jump. In verse 11, we ended with Paul saying that whether it was he or the apostles preached, the gospel was preached, and now he broaches the subject at hand and having really established in the first 11 verses that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, he gives us all the witnesses from Peter to the apostles to the 500 to last of all, he himself. He says, now, now, I love that now. All right, you guys, now let's get to the heart of the issue, right? If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how can some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Uh, these are the words of a real rhetorician. He's a, uh, he's, he is so logical in how he thinks and here is a tr- there's a truckload of evidence that I've just given you that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, many of the 500 who saw it are still alive, he said. You don't believe in it? Go find them out, because they're still alive, he said in those first 11 verses last week. But here Paul makes a connection which says, Christ rose from the dead. We get that. How can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? It's really interesting. Think about it. Why would we believe that just because Jesus rose from the dead, why do we believe that just because a man named Jesus rose from the dead, that others will too? Where does that come from? And, I mean, he deserved to rise from the dead because he had no sin, at least in himself, our sin was placed upon him, but he deserved to rise from the dead. The grave shouldn't have held Jesus because he had no reason to die. So, but I don't understand why we would rise from the dead just because he did. Well, I, of course I understand, but let's talk about that. Paul is going to answer this for us. In part, he's going to do it through some argumentation that's going to follow next week, but he's not going to do it fully. When we think about it, it is one thing to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, But it's really an altogether different thing to believe that others will too. In fact, all will too. Right? So you you can have the belief, well, I can buy that one guy rose from the dead. But why does everybody else rise from the dead too? So we get it in theory. If you place your faith on Jesus... He rose from the dead as the first fruits of the human race to rise from the dead. Then as believers, because of our faith, we will rise from the dead too. That's, that's typically how we think of it. We, because of our faith in Jesus, are going to rise too. That's not true. That's not true at all, just to let you know, in a general statement. Because all rise from the dead, Believe in Him or not, you're rising from the dead. So you have to extract out faith from resurrection. The resurrection happens to everybody, whether they believed in Jesus or not. So, especially if you're someone who resists the idea that Jesus' vicarious works are beneficial to all. There's a segment of people who don't believe the works He did are applicable to all they say they're applicable to only a few right but here we have evidence that jesus work of resurrection if you want to put it that way is beneficial to all we have no problem admitting that we say oh his resurrection was beneficial to all forget about his atonement that can't be no 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 we'll give that his resurrection was for all but when it comes to what he did for sin no we're not going to touch that one right But scripture is clear in terms of resurrection that what he did and his rising from the grave is a benefit to all. Where does the idea of resurrection come from? It starts way back. Go to Daniel. If you're following us at home, we're here. Daniel 12, 2. Daniel says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. But the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. All will rise, some to life, some to contempt. Right off the bat, the precedent is, precedent is set. The resurrection of the dead is for all. Okay? Daniel 12:3 uh, hits on the resurrection again. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. David, the psalmist says in Psalm 17, 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. David said that. Um, intimating that the grave is not the end of human existence even Job in one of the oldest books of the Bible Job he says in Job 19 23 through 27 oh that my words were written oh that they were inscribed in a book that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever as for me I know that my Redeemer lives And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. At the last, he will take his stand on the earth. It's believed by scholars that when Job spoke so anciently of his Redeemer's stand upon the earth, it was a reference to him having victory over all things, including the grave. Psalmist David 49, 15, he says, But God will redeem my soul, redeem my soul from, listen to this phrase, the power of Sheol, which is the covered place, which is translated to hell by us. But uh, I know, David says, that God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Those Mormons who say David was too far gone, he doesn't get out, uh, he doesn't get to go to be with heaven. Right there, David, he writes that God will redeem his soul from the power. Remember that phrase from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So I like how it's written, a power possessed somehow by death and the grave. There was a power over all who entered it. And, but David says, I know the Redeemer. I know my Messiah is going to redeem me out from that power. And this Psalm is evidence of his hope in that. In Psalm 71:20, which is often seen as a messianic uh, prophecy, it says, "You who have won me many troubles and distresses will revive me again, and will bring me up from the depths of the earth." Isaiah in 26:19 says, "Your dead will live." He actually says, "Their corpses will rise." And you who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your due is the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. And finally, the Old Testament, uh, Hosea 13, 14 says, shall I ransom them from the power, there it is again, of Sheol? Shall I, God says, ransom them from the power of death and hell, the covered place? Shall I redeem them from death O oh, death where are your thorns o oh, sheol where is your sting compassion will be hidden from my sight so again there's references in all of this to there being a power of death and we know that from adam all the way up through abraham and isaac and jacob and all the nation of israel when they died they went to the covered place they went to sheol what we would call hell A paradise and a prison part and it was covered and it was separated from God because the sins of blood and the goats, the goats, the blood of goats and animals could not redeem them. There was a separation. But all of these prophets are talking about, I know that I will be taken up from this place. By the time we get to Jesus' day, several hundred years after the close of the intertestamentary period, 400 years of silence, nothing from the heavens. The, the heavens were ten, the Jews said. It was brass. There was no prophecy given for the 400 years. Um, the, there were some in the house of Israel, Jews, who were teaching there's no such thing as a resurrection. Acts 23.8 says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, there's no angels, there's no spirit. Have you ever met anybody who says that? But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So even within the Sanhedrin, the leading council of the Jews in Jesus' day, we have Sadducees and Pharisees, and they divided greatly over whether there's a spirit, whether there's angels, whether there's a resurrection. This set the stage for a lot of teachings that Jesus gives relative to resurrection. For instance, we read in Mark 12, 24 through 27, how Jesus is approached by some Pharisees, and they want to set the guy up, right? So they say, Jesus, in the resurrection, which they don't believe in, and they refer to the Leverite law, that if a woman is married to a man and the man dies before she is able to give issue, or even, I think even if she she has, I think the Leverite law could pass on, even if she has had children, that the brother of the woman who died, the uh, brother of the husband of the woman who died, would take the wife. And so they come to him and they say, so we have a brother, and I don't remember the number, I think it's five or four, we have a man, he dies, and his wife is taken by the next brother, and he and dies, and the wife is taken by the next brother, and he dies, and they, they really take it to an extreme to catch him, right? And they say, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? They didn't believe in the resurrection, and they wanted to show how foolish it was to believe in it. And he says simply, he clears it up, he goes, you don't know the scriptures, He says, for when they rise from the dead, acknowledging that there is a resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Totally wiping out Joseph Smith's deal, right? Totally wiping that idea out. Not only did the Sadducees question the resurrection, in Paul's day we read in 2 Timothy 2.18 that some men, Paul says, have gone astray from the truth and they're saying the resurrection has taken place already, right? And this upset some people that were of the faith. There's a reason that that could have been taught, because when Jesus rose, we're going to read that some rose from the grave. So they could have said the resurrection has happened. And Paul is trying to say there, and this is upsetting people, don't believe it yet. So the topic then was topsy-turvy, and... From Jesus to Paul, we discover a great deal of information about the resurrection. Now, it's not an easy task to understand their words when or if we take them and assign them directly from what they say to us. When we do that, you run into all sorts of anachronistic uh, problems and difficulties. And so, because you have to admit, they were at a time and in a place, even if you aren't a fulfillment person, even if you think Jesus is coming in the future, there are some difficulties with what they say then and what we, how to apply that to us now. It's not that there's not a resurrection that started then with them and continues today. I believe that. But these passages were specific to Jesus coming back and the resurrection beginning at that time. And so to make it simple, try and understand that all of them are describing what the resurrection will look like and be like to them then in the context of some of them have died already and believed in Jesus, what's going to happen to them, and some of them would be alive believing in Jesus, what would happen to them? Those are two things they're balancing when it comes to talking about resurrection, Paul talks about it in First and Second Thessalonians extensively. And those of you who are alive when he comes, this is what will happen. And those who have died, this is what will happen. So we have that going on constantly in the way the apostles are describing the resurrection. It's really important because the then-then were both lit, raised from the literal grave. We have evidence of that as Jesus was, and others were taken into the skies and changed in the twinkling of an eye, okay? Um, At his coming, that's what Paul says would happen. And those of you, he writes in, in Thessalonians, who are here will be taken up and changed in the twinkling of an eye. So we have two types of approaches to resurrection going on that makes it complicated for us right now. Uh, So first, let's read what the writers and speakers in Scripture said to them then about the resurrection that was going to revolve around the Lord that age and his coming, which would initiate the resurrection of all. So, And that will be covered as we move on in the weeks to come. In John 5, 28, Jesus said, listen carefully to their words. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming, we believe, many people believe that's still out in the future, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those that did good deeds to the resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. So I want to point out that the resurrection, how it's meted out here in Jesus' description from his mouth, the resurrection to life and the resurrection to damnation is all based on the deeds done in the body. Good deeds to life, bad deeds to damnation. That's how he puts it, okay? That's what he says. The dead will come from the tombs. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now you have to remember they were under the law. You have to remember all of those things when you try to understand what that passage means and I'm not going to go into it extensively here yet. So then the type of resurrection from all the way back to them then is based on deeds done. That's You can say that. And without problem in context, the resurrection they were going to get was based on deeds done. Now remember, relative to the law, relative to receiving, uh, not receiving Christ, relative to the lives they've led, all of it to the deeds done. Admittedly, and to be fair, he is speaking of the resurrection that would commence at the end of that age that he promised would come within 40 years. And all of those who would participate in it when the hour arrives, he says the hour arrives. Now listen, in the Greek, Jesus says the hour is coming. Remember this, the apostles said the hour is getting closer. They got even closer, as they got closer to the hour, they said the hour is nearly upon us. John, in, in his epistle, says the hour is here. It's right now. Revelation says you can't escape it. It's on you, seven churches, okay? So that hour that Jesus was talking about, he said the hour is coming, and his day was 40 years away. Nevertheless, I do not think the rules of resurrection have changed. I think the rules—we're calling them the rules of resurrection—and I remain convinced. I remain convinced that the difference between all people in the world, the only difference between all people, between believers and non-believers, the only difference in their eternal destination, is going to be in the resurrected body they receive. That is the difference. I am soundly standing on it through Scripture. That is the difference between the worst of the worst and the best of the best, is that it's in the resurrected body they receive. That will come out as we continue to talk, and more on that later. We read in Acts 24, 15 that Paul says, Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, there is a small... their." <laughs> that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Nothing to do with faith. There will be a resurrection. Paul also says when speaking before Felix in Acts 24, 15, having a hope in God which these men cherish in themselves, there will certainly be a resurrection. I just said that. Luke, it says in uh, uh, Acts 17, 18. And when some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be proclaiming strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The Greeks couldn't get it. They didn't, they didn't understand it. Twelve verses later, we read Paul say in Acts 17, 30, and the times of this ignorance God winked at. When before you had the law, when you were sinners, you didn't have anything. God was winking at you, right? But now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day he says. In which he will judge the world, it says in the King James. Paul's speech there is not he's going to judge the world. His speech is he is going to judge the oikomenia. He is going to judge the land. He's going to judge the 12 tribes. The time has come, a day has been appointed, when God is going to come and judge this Roman empire, so to speak. In righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. He's going to judge it in righteousness, whereof he has given assurance unto all men that he has raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We'll hear more again on this matter later. Speaking to them, then, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 52, the chapter wherein, jumping out to verse 52, He speaks of those who are alive in the hour or day when Jesus would come and judge the land, judge the empire, and saying, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. We will be changed who are surviving at that time. There it is. We have two types. Some will come out of the tombs. Those who are alive will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. All receiving a resurrection. Speaking to that day, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So we have some order being given through Scripture. Again, speaking to that age and wrapping it all up, Jesus says in Matthew 25, 31, 32, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations, and that word nations is better uh, uh, translated from the Greek to uh, tribes, ethnos. All the nations, not nations like Russia, China, U.S., Canada. All the ethnicities, all the tribes really, 12 tribes, will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, the sheep from the goats. Okay? Sheep resurrected to life, goats resurrected to damnation is the way you might add to that. This act is described in Revelation 20. At the great white throne judgment, which wraps up the end of that age completely that Jesus had prophesied of coming upon them and prepares us to enter into the current age where everything is happening now in the twinkling of an eye where before there was the material spiritual application, those who were dead in Christ and those who were alive changing in the twinkling of an eye, we've entered into all twinkling of an eye stuff and the tomb stuff being done. We'll get more to that as we get into the chapter. I know some of you don't understand that, but it's okay. Uh, We're going to get into what Paul writes about the actual resurrection later on in chapter 15. It's fascinating uh, how he describes it. But let's continue to talk about what the scripture says about resurrection. In John chapter 11, 25 through 26, Jesus gives a really tricky. He has a tricky conversation with Martha. If you just read through it, you're not going to catch it. But read through it with me and let me give some emphasis on the wrong syllables. And maybe you will catch the nuance of what he's saying here, right? This is how the conversation goes. Lazarus, her brother, had died. He's been in the grave for what the Jews said is a sure sign of death three days more. He stinks. He's gone. Dead, right? So Jesus says to Martha, verse 23 of chapter 11, Your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Martha, believe thou this? And she said unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. These passages have Jesus talking to Martha about two different things. He talks to her about resurrection, but he also talks to her about eternal life, which comes through that good resurrection. Okay, That comes by faith. That comes by faith. On the one hand... She starts off, well, let me just go through it. First of all, Lazarus is in the grave, right? And Jesus says, your brother will rise again, point blank. And Martha says, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at that last day. It's a simple give and take, right? We don't know what Jesus meant in verse 23 when he says, your brother will rise again. But we know that Martha thought and affirmed that Lazarus would rise again physically at that last day in the resurrection. Having admitted to a belief in the resurrection at that last day, Jesus declares how vital a role he plays in two ways to what's going to happen with Lazarus. Listen to what he says back to her. I am the resurrection. I'm the reason there will be a resurrection at the last day in the first place, is what he says. But then he adds And the life. He's not just the resurrection for all. We know all will be resurrected. He is also the resurrection and the life. And the life, when you say the life, that's talking about eternal life in a resurrected body that can abide in the presence of God. I am the resurrection. You've said you know Lazarus will rise in the resurrection, but I am also the life. He that believeth in me... Now he's talking about belief. Though he were dead, yet he shall really live. I'm adding really there. He's not just going to rise. I am the resurrection. All are going to rise, Martha. But I'm the resurrection and the life. And so he says, if you believe on me, anyone who believes on me, though they were dead, they will live. This is not speaking of the resurrection only. It's speaking of the resurrection of eternal, to eternal life which comes by belief on him. See, so resurrection, a gift to all, and Martha admitted belief to a resurrection. But Jesus points out to her plainly that he is not only the resurrection, but also the life that will continue on past the grave for all who believe. And then he says, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he says to Martha, do you believe this? I know you believe in the resurrection. You've just said it. You said, I know Lazarus will rise in the resurrection of the last day. He says, so do you also believe that whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die, Martha? Do you believe this too? So he's not talking about physical death here, that if, if people believe in Jesus, we still die. That's not, he's not talking about physical death. That's not the case. We all die physical death. He is speaking of the second death here, and he ties belief on him to eternal life, even though some were dead physically. The fact that Jesus is speaking of eternal life through the resurrected body obtained by faith is seen in how she now responds. Her first response is, I know that Lazarus will rise in the the resurrection at the last day. But the last verse, she says, yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the son of God, which should come into the world. So he asks her, do you believe that you will rise to an eternal life if you believe on me too? Not just in a resurrection? She says, yea, Lord. And she confirms her faith in him, right? So where resurrection is mentioned by Martha and Jesus proclaims to her that he is the resurrection when he adds, and the life, we see a distinction between those two. There's resurrection, all good, great, fine. But there's also a resurrection that comes with the life. It ties having eternal life, though someone is dead to believing on him in these passages. Martha affirms this by admitting that she trusts that he was the Christ, the Son of God, which was prophesied that he would come and save the world. So in this exchange, we see that eternal life is tied to resurrection, resurrected bodies that we receive. And resurrected bodies that we receive are tied to eternal life. They are connected together, right? Somehow there is a type of resurrection that applies to people who believe on Christ, that lends to them having what he calls eternal life. And there is a resurrection that is tied to people that lends to them being damned. Now, that's not in hell. Forget that stuff. Finished. Done. It has to do with something else, and we're going to get to that in a second. But we know, we know that it has to do with some sort of limitation of some sort, and some sort of benefit. Don't know what. This is extremely important relative to the resurrection. Yes, Jesus is the resurrection for all. We get that as scripture makes plain. But he is also the life. So we want to know do people will people have the life? That doesn't come with a religion. There are people in every religion on earth I believe who have the life. It has nothing to do if you come to campus or 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 any of these other denominations, or any of these other sectarian things, do you possess the life, right? Uh, Those who do not will be resurrected to what it says there to them, judgment, which occurs at the great white throne. Again, after Revelation 20, which describes the great white throne judgment, we have Revelation 21 and 22, 1 through 6, and those talk about the new age we live in. Now, Great White Throne's done for them then. happens sheep and goats separated. Judgment and all that occurs, right? But we enter in a new place after that, according to Revelation. So, I'm committed to the following quick biblical ideas that Jesus paid for the sin of the world. No limited atonement stuff here. That he did not simply die as a man for our sin. He died for mankind, You want to put emphasis on what he did on the cross? That was mankind he was paying for up there. That was not a man dying for sin. It was him dying for mankind. That is really important. And God through him has reconciled the world to himself. No question. What this means is no person will stand before God and he is going to tally up the sins that they did in their life. He paid for the sin of the world. Therefore, reconciling that covered place, shutting it down, casting it in, as Revelation talks about, over with, the world's been reconciled. Now all are going to God and they receive one resurrection or another. And we'll talk about how that winds up at the end of today. This is all made possible by the finished work of Christ Jesus, this is reconciliation, which we're covering in meat in the afternoon in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. However, this does not erase the fact that by faith in the Son, that some will receive a resurrection to life, to eternal life. And that resurrection that they will receive, in fact, allows them to experience something in the afterlife that those who receive a different type of resurrection will not. This then suggests that all who have not received Christ by faith will will be resurrected, but to a different way. And I see this as automatically looking at the context of Revelation, which describes the end of that age, as being those who are in the New Jerusalem, where God and Christ dwell. They have bodies, resurrected bodies, that are able to have eternal life in that new Jerusalem. And there are those who are resurrected who live outside of that new Jerusalem, all reconciled to that heavenly place. That is how it seems to be described fairly clearly through an exegetical study of Scripture. To me, it seems the resurrected body received from God defines where you are, where, you are, where, you, where someone goes, where they're allowed to go. Uh, and as, as Revelation says, there's a wall around that great uh, New Jerusalem, which is spiritual, which is on high. And that wall has four gates at the north, east, south, and west that are open day and night, which suggests anyone can come in and out. But can they go in and out? Will they go in and out? Have their knees bowed and tongues confessed? Things like that. The permanency of our resurrected bodies their ability to change or adapt, we have no idea. So don't go down a dogmatic road. You say, you got your resurrected body. That's it forever. We have nothing that says that. We just says when you receive the resurrected body because you had faith in him and it's a resurrected body to life, that you will have eternal life. We have nothing that says that, that things cannot change or be altered. We want to think that. We teach it. But we have no text that says that. Moving back to scripture, Jesus says in John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise up on that last day. All of the scriptures couched on the coming hour, the last day, the kingdom is coming, prepare, repent, the ax is laid at the root of the trees. In Luke 14, 12 through 14, we read something radical. He says to a man who invited him to eat with him, When you make a dinner or a supper, don't call your friends, don't call your brethren, don't call your kinsmen, don't call your rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again and a recompense be made to you. In other words, when you have a big party, don't invite all the rich people to come because then they're gonna have a party and they'll invite you and you'll be recompensed. Jesus is so radical. But when thou make a feast, he says, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. What a party that would be. (laughs) Can you you just see it in your eye? Wow. Uh, And thou will be blessed for they cannot recompense thee. Ready? And he adds, For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. This is one of the passages that causes me to suggest that the rewards of actions done, the deeds that were judged on it when it comes to resurrection, play out in the resurrected body we get. Saved by grace through faith, for sure. But the resurrected body you get is where the rewards come in. We're going to see more of that as we get into 1 Corinthians 15 toward the end. Contrasting the idea that people like the Mormons say the resurrection will be that... The Book of Mormon cleared this up. Sorry, I've been referencing Mormonism a bit this morning. That your body will come up out of it the same way it was, but in perfection. That's how the Mormons translate resurrection. Because they're consummate materialists. And if you go in... And Sean McCraney went in, and boy, when he was 57, he put on a lot of weight, and he let himself go with his hair and stuff. But boy, when he comes back out, it's going to be when he was a 19-year-old lifeguard in Huntington Beach. Holy cow! I can't wait to get all my glory back, the Mormons say, right? Listen to what Scripture says. Uh, it says in 1 John 3:2, Beloved, this is John writing. Now we are the children of God, And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, meaning upon his promised return to them, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's what it says. So there's an implication here that how he was seen on earth after he returned before he ascended and the visions of him and his interactions with humans, there is this idea that that's who he is. I don't think so. John clearly tells us there that when he comes back, not only will they see him as he is, they also will uh, become and appear to what they will be. And I tend to see in that more than just our bodies in its prime. Then we can wrap our tour through Scripture on resurrection up by hearing what Paul says about it. Uh, One point he brings up often about resurrection is glory. He's going to do that in chapter 15 later on. He's going to talk about different glories. Now, just because, again, Mormonism, the founder of Mormonism talks about glorious kingdoms, which he inserted into the text, we cannot get around the fact that there are different glories of resurrection, and that is taken from 1 Corinthians 15, which we're in. There are different glories of resurrected bodies. That's a biblical fact. So he, Paul writes in Romans 8:17, If your children, your heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, never hear this preached by Christians, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. There's a glorification we're looking to, to occur at death that is going to be tied to the glory he has. Since we're joint heirs with him, Paul is saying we'll experience the same glory that he has. Now we know, since his glorification came at his resurrection, that this is all, in all probability, speaking of the glory those who that uh, of the glory that we will receive at resurrection. In Colossians three four, it says, "When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory." I don't think we know or understand what that glory looks like. I don't think people who have had near-death experiences, if they're legitimate, know what that glory looks like. I don't think we know what that glory looks like until we've been given that glory and we're in that glory. So when we try to anthropomorphize the heavens and the state that we'll be in, I'm not sure we can adequately do it when it talks about us appearing in a different way and our glory being relative to His. In Romans 6, 5, it says, "For." If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, if we have died with him, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, people want to take that literally and materially. You can do that. But John tells us we don't know what he's like. We will only know what he's like when he returns, he says. So I'm not sure we can just take it, well, this is what he looked like at his resurrection, That's what we will be like. I'm not sure that's possible. You can, you're welcome. You might be right, but I'm not sure. Philippians 3.21, Paul says, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So we're in a humble state and we're gonna somehow be resurrected into the body, not just his body, but the body of his glory By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. We're starting to touch on power here. You remember when I emphasized that the grave, Sheol, Hell had power, and it kept David in, and it kept Abraham in, it kept everybody in. Right? Sons of Noah, everybody in that? Well, now we're starting, Paul is starting to bring out that there's a tie between the resurrection, conformity with the body of his glory, and power. Okay? The saints at Thessalonica were afraid, as we mentioned, that those who had died were missing out on something that would happen when Jesus returned. It was a concern they voiced. And so Paul addressed this and says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-14, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. This is to them. As to those who are asleep, meaning dead, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Don't worry. Don't be walking around wondering about Grandma Jones who died last week and Jesus hasn't come back yet as he promised. Don't worry about it, he says. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That gives us another twist on what that looks like right Romans 6:8 says now if we have died with Christ we believe that we shall also live with him and then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6:14 now God has not only raised the Lord but will also raise up us through his power again power i'm just bringing it okay and then 2 Corinthians 4 a couple more 4:14 4, says knowing that he who raised the Lord will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Then describing what will happen at his coming, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians four sixteen: for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And Paul says in more detail in 2 Corinthians through 4 For if we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we know that if this thing falls apart, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, and I am groaning more and more, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, with our dwelling from heaven. That's a spiritual body. That's a body he's going to give us. That's a resurrected body, our body from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put in it on, will not be found naked. Will not be found naked. So we ha- may have some idea there on the resurrection of the, those who are faithful, the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the, of the damned in that maybe their resurrection leaves them naked. And maybe we are clothed in power and there is lies the difference. And maybe outside the city gates, there's shame. I mean, who wants to walk in a city of people clothed in, in robes of power because of Christ and they're wandering around in the presence of God and Jesus. And you got some guy who says, I've made a mistake. And they come in through the, the east gate, and they walk into the middle of everybody, and they're naked. I mean, I don't know. But that, this seems to be the difference that Paul's bringing up, right? Then he encourages the believers at Corinth one more, and he says one verse later, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. So if you ever have those feelings that, you know, I really am not thriving in this place. This is not my home. I'm yearning for that other place. That's what he's talking about. Knowing that when we are home in this body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord in his kingdom, that new Jerusalem. Some interesting passages really quickly that add flavor to the resurrection. Hebrews 11.35, it's describing women of faith. It's the Hall of Fame of Faith chapter, chapter 11 of Hebrews. And it talks about all the Old Testament prophets and prophetesses who were of faith. And it mentions Rahab, by the way, you know, the harlot. And she's mentioned in the Hall of Fame of Faith, Rahab the harlot. I always bring that up because we make such a big deal about the failures in the flesh. It's the faith that matters. So Rahab the harlot's mentioned. And in describing some of the women in the Old Testament days, the writer of Hebrews says, women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. So what he seems to be saying there, what he appears to be saying there are that there were women who were willing to receive torture in that day rather than sell out and be given life to walk around on this earth. They endured torture and because they wanted to receive a better resurrection. And I've said this before, and, and I don't, you know, if you don't believe it, it's okay, but I am, I am convinced that the goal is not heaven. The goal is to be raised in power as a joint heir with Christ by and through him, dying to this flesh, living in his resurrection and letting God, and it says God, we're going to read this later on in 1 Corinthians 15, God is the one who gives the resurrected body to each of us. He is just, he is merciful, he is fair, he takes everything into account. He gives it, but it's primarily based between life and death or nakedness and being clothed to faith to faith, which leads you to then love. Finally, we read a them then reference about the resurrection that has to be addressed. And it's found in Matthew 27, 52, speaking to the time after his resurrection, even though it it chronologically is a little messed up in Matthew, we read the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now, I'm going to go with the simplest reading of this. And I'm going to assume that the body of people in graves in Jerusalem were raised and walked out among them. I think that's what it's saying. They suggest that there was an earthquake when Jesus uh, died on the cross. And that earthquake shook open the graves. And then uh, several days later, after he arose, always, he's the first fruits of the grave some dead walked out among them. And we know that they did not rise before him, but they seem to rise bodily in this instance. And this seems to clearly suggest that there's two types of resurrection that scripture is speaking to. There's the bodily as Jesus did and as those in Jerusalem did at that day. And as perhaps some did when Jesus returned to them then. Uh, But then there is... Um, also the twinkling of an eye referring to that bodily resurrection that occurred when Jesus came out of the grave i want to give you a really uh, interesting thing job in job 19:26 he write, writes way back and after my flesh has been destroyed king james says by worms eaten by worms yet in my flesh i will see god is what he says and so many people say, see, there, everybody is going to experience that. Everybody's going to come out of the tombs. Everyone's going to do that. Paul's going to con- contradict that later on in 15. But I'm of the opinion that Job was one of those who was raised. That this was a prophetic utterance and that when Jesus died and was resurrected and three days later came out of the tomb, that those in Jerusalem and the tombs were open came out of the grave. I think Job was one of them. And I think that is a, is a prophetic reference of what would happen with him. I don't think because Job said that, that we will say that in my flesh, I will see God. Why? Because scripture says no flesh can inhabit the presence of God. No flesh can see God. So he was talking about seeing Christ, seeing God in him. That seems to be the case. The twinkling of an eye resurrection that Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians for those who were alive at his coming. I am convinced that this is the resurrection all people now experience going back 2,000 years or about, that when anyone dies, they, are, they experience their rapture, they experience their judgment. God gives them their resurrected body. They take their place in his realm, either in his kingdom where God and Christ dwell, or outside of it, their resurrected body deciding where they will go. One thing about this and near-death experiences, because I've been reading about those, I don't take them as gospel. I know they're suspect to great chicanery, but one thing about near-death experiences, it seems like all those who die and experience heaven, they obviously haven't experienced the resurrection. The reward of a good ba- uh, a body that can abide in the presence of God or a body that cannot. They haven't experienced that. All they've experienced is the reconciliation to heaven. And so because if they experienced the resurrection, they'd still be there. They're not coming back here, right? So their reports are incomplete. They haven't experienced that that resurrection that are awaited for all. And so we don't get back from them what the whole thing looks like. We just get them what they say they see on the other side. In any case, whatever those things are worth, Paul, having demonstrated the evidence for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, proceeds to demonstrate that all dead will rise. The scripture supports all will rise, and it's tied to the fact that Jesus rose. Next week, we enter into his logic, which is superb but I just wanna wrap up our time together with a couple observations. The idea is since Jesus resurrected, we will all also resurrect. Stay with me on these last points. The resurrections of the world's inhabitants have nothing to do in the universal sense with faith, right? All will experience arising from the grave and be fitted with another body, that is a general truth, faith or not. Of course, belief does play a role in the body we will receive, but the point is all will be resurrected without faith. Why then wasn't there a resurrection prior to Jesus for the Old Testament folk? Because the grave had power over them from rising up. Why did the graves have such power? You ready for the connection? Because the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death. Now listen, the only way for all to rise up, the only way for there to be a universal resurrection for all to rise up is for the wages of their sin to have been paid or death would hold them bound. The only way for there to be a universal resurrection is for the sins of all to have been paid because the wages of sin is death. In other words, if there's a universal resurrection, there's a universal payment of sin And this gets rid of this limited atonement BS that's made by men. No way our Savior paid for the sin of the entire world. And as a result of having done that, the grave cannot hold anybody anymore. To argue for a limited atonement for sin would be to simultaneously argue for a limited resurrection of the dead. But since we know all rise with a resurrected body, then we must admit that all have been released from the power that the grave had upon them and that it's possible because the wages of all sin have been paid by Christ for humanity paying the price of death. Granted, there are different resurrections. But in order for the unsaved to be released from the grave, even to be judged, even to be judged, to be released from the grave and receive a resurrected body, their sins have to have been remitted. That's why Sheol has been done away with. It's done away with. That was the place, that was the wages of sin. Death, Jesus overcame death. The power has no more power on this earth. Okay, So when we think that our beloved who didn't believe in Jesus die, we go to their funeral, they're laid in the grave, and their souls are in hell, we, we totally forget what Jesus has done for the sin of the world. We act like that hasn't been paid for. It's been paid for. Now, do they get a great resurrected body? Not according to Scripture. No, no, no. but the hell factor is done with, okay? And that scripture supports that. For this reason, I believe that 2 Corinthians 5, 14, when it says, speaking of Jesus, that if one died for all, then all are dead. If one died for all, then all are dead. Understand this passage it's not trying to say that Christ died because we're all dead in sin. It's saying that because Christ died for humanity's sin on the cross, all of humanity have died for their sin vicariously through him. We have paid the price through his atonement for the sin, and we all have experienced death. The the wages of sin is death. We've all experienced it vicariously through his death. That's why we are all rising. Then to meet God with that resurrected body he has for us. We've all died with Christ. Three more paragraphs. Through his substitutionary death for our sin, which kept the world in the grave prior to him, we have all now paid for the sin in and through his death for all sin. And there is nothing to hold us in that grave any longer even the most evil will rise because they died for their sin vicariously through Christ, whether they've believed on him or not. So I tend to see all people no longer dead in sin. We're dead in sin because of Adam. I see all people dead with him. That is how he is the victor over everything. We've all died with him. The question becomes next week, have you risen with him? (laughs) <laughs> dead with him gives you resurrection. Dead with him gives you dying and having God not say, okay, you got this sin and that sin and that sin. That's done. But have you then risen with him in his resurrection? Died with him, yes. But by faith in him, have you risen with him and walked in the spirit of the Christian life? There is a huge difference between those two. So different that those who have been risen with him will be clothed in the afterlife in glory with Christ as a joint heir, and those who have not will be naked. That is a, that is a marked difference. That's how scripture describes it. We'll continue forward with this at verse 13. Questions, comments, insights. Please. <sighs> Hi, um, this is Rachel. I don't really um, know if this has any bearing on anything, because obviously we don't know it a lot about the afterlife. But when you talk about like um, being clothed in His glory versus being naked, um, to me it uh, it has this resemblance of like everyone can see who you are. And so, like, because you're walking around uncomfortably, where these people can see who you are, you're you're naked. Sure. So yeah, it's not I, literal. I, yeah, I have no idea, like, if that means anything. I like to think of it being literal. This is far more <laughs> hor- horrific for me. Not pretty in the in the mirror. I don't want to be outside the city gates naked. It's just terrifying to me. I'd rather people see my inner bad black heart than my body without clothes. So, but you're probably right, Rachel. <laughs> Anybody else? Okay, guys, let's pray. Oh, do we have a prayer list? Vanna White, you're being late. Be do be on it. Gracie. Gracie. Any other Liz. Lord, we, uh, we come to you a lot of information from Scripture, giving us a basis or an attempted basis in resurrection. And we're going to learn more about when and how and what and why for us and what it says. But we just pray that this information will seep in in a good way into our heart. That is reliable and true. We'll exit from here and we'll put uh, the organized element of religion in our lives aside and we'll get out and practice it. We'll be Jesus to our neighbors. We will live and walk in the risen Christ. And we will, uh, when they see us, they will meet him. We pray you'll empower us to die to our flesh, leave it laying in the grave, dead, paid for, and then to rise in this new life and to walk in faith and hope and love, especially love. The greatest of those is love. So when we are, have enemies, Lord, we pray that we'll forgive them quickly. And we pray that we'll, if we have people who have really harmed us that we'll do what you say we'll go to them and if they reject us we'll still forgive we pray a spirit of forgiveness in our hearts for all people of all things always never holding a grudge against anyone if it's possible and we know it's not always possible in our flesh we pray for your uh, sustaining spirit as we uh, think about our friends and family uh, who are suffering the people who have such difficulty in their flesh right now Some people are addicted and have all kinds of issues that way. Some people can't keep jobs. Some people are failing financially. Others are having problems with their physical health and with their emotional and psychological health, addictions. Lord, it's just everywhere in this world. And so we lift up our family in faith, and we lift up people who aren't of faith, that you will make yourself known and you will present yourself. We pray specifically for those who have suffered uh, the loss of loved ones, we lost our little Gracie to cancer a few weeks back and that's going to be really hard at this holiday season for parents, for her sister. And we pray for, uh, of course, Rex and we pray for Judy and we pray for Linda Cassidy and her son. We pray for all others who have experienced losses. Everybody in here has. So we just pray that you will warm our hearts with this knowledge that you're giving us, that there is a city and there, are, there is a place for those who are yours, but there's a place for those who are not yet and let us walk and let's hope all things and believe all things and be people of hope and faith and let us have that bright light of your love shine in our hearts as we move forward this week so those i haven't mentioned forgive bless liz and lisa and all the others who are in diana and uh, just help them and i had someone to add to the list lord i can't remember their name but you do so remember it now And we pray for this in jesus name amen